Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. We're now going to listen to another author interview from the archives. In 2012, I spoke with writer Louise Erdrich about her National Book Award-winning novel, The Roundhouse. Set on an Ojibwe reservation in North Dakota, the book deals with the aftermath of a brutal rape and a son's quest for justice. It's part of a trilogy which includes The Plague of Doves and La Rose. Louise Erdrich joins us in studio. So glad to have you back here. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. First, I want to talk about this new book because it is... You really know how to write a page turner. I mean, you know, there there are uh, great literary figures, and you are one of them who um, open a whole world for us and give us this mythopoetic uh, universe, as it were, a cosmos. But don't necessarily do the plot stuff that can make you want to just turn the pages. Mm, You do it. I like doing that. Yeah, I know you do. I really do. It's partly for me, but in this case, I was haunted by the political situation that the underlying situation that this book in its events refers Let's to. Let's mention it again the roundhouse. The roundhouse. Yeah. The roundhouse refers to um, a situation where it's very difficult to prosecute crimes of sexual violence on reservations. So I wanted to get this going as a suspense novel so that people would be uh, pulled into it, want to read it and get a sense of the history, why this is the case, and what's happening today in this book. So it's for educational purpose, in a sense. It was for educational purposes alone to make a suspense (laughs) novel that people wanted to read, I like Kingsolver. I mean, she said to me on a couple of occasions, (laughs) I just want to make people turn the pages so they'll get... They'll learn from what I have to tell them, whatever that may be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is also a story that's told, uh, well, we've got the perch of time, and but it's really a thir- 13-year-old boy, Joe, your, your protagonist, and uh, the sense of getting into the head of an adolescent boy. I mean, yeah. you, you do men pretty well, I must say. I mean, Thank you. And, and even going back to love medicine, I used to say, boy, she's really, you know, she knows the way men think and all that. Uh, but here... You know, you you convince us with this voice. There are times when I think, could he really be that canny and smart? But I have to remind myself, this is told from a perch. Right. Yeah. So I've kind of got it both ways, where he, where he's looking back and he's being able to he he's able to um, comment on the things that are happening to him at the time. But he also it sometimes it 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 moves into a a peer boy world where they are doing things that are absurd and and getting themselves into ridiculous sorts of trouble and um i i can i can just do conversations between them and they're they're kind of geeky kids for they're tricky uh yeah they're yeah yeah, they love well they love the next generation right yeah in fact the um the chapters all have titles from the first season of the next generation they've rigged up they've macgyvered a satellite dish that 
they can use to pull in the signals that uh, come from as far away as Chicago, and they can they can see the episodes, and they're they're excited about each one that comes out. So the chapters each have the title from one of the episodes. Is this from your uh, own progeny, or you totally your imagination? It's totally my imagination, <laughs> which is we- weird and warped. So I, uh, I, I watch you them all. Think on like a kid. VHS. Too. I don't know. I think I had this kind of freedom as a child, where I grew up in a small North Dakota town, where I could, uh, and I um, went up to my grandparents on the reservation. I, you know, I and I, I was able to have that kind of freedom, which roaming the town roaming the woods really not having anyone worry about where i was at any particular hour um and being able to explore the world in a very different way that children than than children can can do now and with that you had i always liked the story um your father giving you a nickel for every story you came up with um, yeah yeah, uh, did. We have to inflate that. You parents who are listening who think you can encourage a young Louise Erdrich, uh, <laughs> child is father to the man. Uh, let's not make that sexist, but that's Wordsworth. I mean, yeah. the, the sense of encouraging you to be a tale teller, to be a storyteller. Well, that, that really is what I, that's why the suspense, because I like telling a story. A story has to keep people listening and interested. You know, I, I like telling something that has an ongoing plot. Uh, I diverge from the plot. I make it difficult sometimes to get back to it, but it's always, the th- I wanted this one to be tighter and to keep the thread going. You're listening to a special holiday edition of Forum from our archives. I'm Michael Krasny. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Talking with Louise Erdrich, and by the way, her new novel, um, The Roundhouse, has been nominated for a National Book Award. Do you plan trilogies? Do you think, you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a trilogy, or or is it just that, like, because this is connected to Flight of Doves. Yeah, it is, and I didn't plan it, but when I was waiting for some sort of, uh, s- some sort of story to come to me, waiting with this haunting situation in mind, I I realized that I had a 13-year-old talking to me, kind of telling me this story, and I, I wanted to go with it. And I thought, well, he's the perfect age if I set this in the first season of 
the next generation. <laughs> He'd be the perfect age to be the son of the 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 judge and Geraldine who get married in in Plague of Doves. So it turned out I I was that how you pronounce his name? Them. The judge Basil. Uh, Basil. 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 Couts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so it ended up. Yes, it's connected thematically, and uh, I as I wrote this. Another one came to mind, and I thought I'm going to, I'm going to write yet another book, and that'll be, it'll be perfect. It'll be three books, and it'll be connected by this particular theme, somewhat about the same people. You have staked not, out territory here. I mean, in terms of uh, it, it's what Faulkner called my little postage stamp of reality. Instead right. Yaknapatafa County, mm-hmm. uh, and he, you can say it. You. Well. <laughs> No, but I mean, you've got the genealogies, you've got yeah. the, 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 the myths and, and the connectedness uh, in the stories and everything. Um, it's, it's rich. It's, I don't think there's anybody else doing this, really, uh, at the level you're doing it since Faulkner. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's why I get this. Um, I, I do have this question sometimes, uh, w- whether I've been greatly influenced by Faulkner, what what it is. I uh, I suppose I have, but I also am somehow because I never left North Dakota um, till I was eighteen. I put down all of those formational memories as a child there, and so I keep going back to them. The the, the most convincing people seem to come from where I grew up. There's an old saw about writing that you know you have enough. If you have enough material in your youth, you can mine it for the rest of your life. Is there really? Well, I've never heard that, but maybe that's the case for me. But I, my parents still live there, and my my uh, my family's there. So, and my reservations there. So I go back all the time. I don't live that. I, I live three hours from the border. So, you have certainly mined a great deal of material from the reservation, from your own experiences. and also from the Germanic side of your family. I mean, oh, yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. Great Where does the French come in, though? Because I think your mother was half French. Right. So, so the French have been turned into um, semi native people, the Metis. And uh, that's what that, that was the interesting that happened during the fur trade. You know, French voyagers came over sort of um, looking to get wealthy in the fur trade and in order to make alliances that would be profitable, married uh, Ojibwe, mainly Ojibwe, Menominee, mostly Algonquin women, and in in that way, got turned into Native people. Their children became Native, and and um, they they joined in. Now, this is very different than any other, really than than any other uh, set of Europeans who came over. You know, certainly. The the Puritans did not marry into the tribes they met. It was it was a very different sort of world, and so it's an ongoing culture. It's like a Creole culture that exists out in in uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, North Dakota, into Montana, and uh, some of the people here have some French words that still to this day exist in their language. It does sound like Creole. Yeah. yeah, it is. I guess the Ojibwe people were known as the original people. Where does that name come from? It comes from Anishinaabe, and that's the... Uh, Anishinaabe Moen is the language of the people, and uh, it's being 
revived at a very, uh, with very great intensity right now, because the the language was really nearly wiped out with two generations of people going to boarding schools, so that now young people have decided they're going to go into immersion schools. My one of my daughters is an immersion school. Um, teacher. She's working. She's managing. Learning like, Ojibwe. Yeah. Learning so Ojibwe. is my daughter. I told you. She studied yeah. at the University of Michigan. Yeah. 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 And it's a, it's a huge movement to go back and really revitalize the language. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, that you, and that so you needed. Have, I mean, these indigenous yes. people's languages, tribal languages are disappearing mm-hmm. and the whole culture is embedded in them. I'm not going to get on my soapbox here, but I think we feel the same. About we feel this. the same way about it, that there is a whole world view that is very important to understand and to communicate in and 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 when 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 people speak Ojibwe for instance they're very few nouns they're mostly verbs and it's a it's a language of of doing and of community and of seeing instead of um, seeing the animate and the inanimate in in the world and to and seeing a spirit that really flows through everything I was like we were talking to Sandra Cisneros yesterday, who uh, I should mention, uh, these two writers saw each other, and uh, Louise happened to be here as well, and it was like, well, it was, it was really lovely to see the kind of embrace and, and uh, it was affection great to that see they her. have for each other. Yeah, yeah, but, it was great to see uh, You know, she talks about the material and the spiritual world not being different, you know, yes. with respect to, say, something like magic realism. Right, uh, right. Well, I, th- I think that's very much... Um, well, but it also has, for me, has to do with Catholicism because as I grew up, I really believed that miracles should be part of everyday life. I I really believed all of it that I and and so uh, in Ojibwe, the Ojibwe world, of course, the spirit does move through everything, and and you have a sense that there is a living spirit. Even um, the word for insect insect. Uh, Manaduns means a tiny spirit. Um, so everything is alive. Even bugs are spiritual. Are yeah, and, spirit. and y- even say you see a, a stone, the word for stone is animate. It's not in, inanimate. It's animate. It's got an animating spirit. You talk about your relationship to Catholicism now. I mean, I always see in my mind Sister Leopolda, you know, trying <laughs> to drive those demons out in love medicine. But, right. Well, in, in this book, there's... Um, I have a very different character, a priest, Father Travis, who yes. is a um, a former Marine, and he's very good at shooting gophers, and he's um, also a very complex individual. He the 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 boys spy on him. It's 1988, so he's watching a aliens on a VHS player, and they're shocked that he probably owns this VHS mm. tape. You know, they're just, and he's drinking a Michelob, and, and Joe says, oh, my God, it's almost enough to want to make a boy want to be a Catholic, <laughs> to watch this priest. So he's he's um, a, a sign of the outside world coming onto the reservation and being somewhat more sophisticated than anyone's ever seen witnessed a priest being plus he's in great shape you know he can he's a marine he's a marine he can outrun anybody (laughs) in in good shape and i suppose you could say urbanized now right right assimilated in ways that uh 
that come through just with the hybridization of what you've described as this particular character, which is Michelob. And, yeah, and and so they're watching him, thinking that perhaps he's he's a sus. They, they suspect him of 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 a crime, but it it turns out he wouldn't be it wouldn't be possible for him to commit this crime. So they, but they have this. Um, they get basically tossed around the room by this priest, and <laughs> I just had a lot of fun writing him yeah, because, in a way, did, he's yeah. a he's a comical figure because of his enormous strength and his and the way that they uh, don't quite anticipate being caught, tossed, creatively called creatively obscene names without ever uh, using a bad word. <laughs> <laughs> well, these are boys that remind one almost of like Huck and, and Tom, you know, I mean, and yeah. adventure and sleuthing and everything, except that, of course, it's a grim story and it hits so close to home. But exactly. you managed to bring in these comedic elements. Uh, and I mean, sometimes you're really quite funny, and uh, even though the story is really quite grim. Uh, I um, I found myself, in fact, uh, you know, just not, which is a good sign, particularly when you're writing a suspenseful note, not knowing what what's Louise going to do next with me here? You know, as a <laughs> Shifting well, me around. <laughs> well, it's partly that, you know, the, the elders in this story have a, have it, it, incredible license to tease, to be, um, to talk about their erotic pasts, to, uh, to just to. You got a pretty hot grandma here. In fact, uh, All right, she has great some great memories that she enjoys sharing. We have a hundred and twelve year old um, great uncle who has not given up on his love life. <laughs> yeah, and why do that? I why, mean, especially yeah, in an era exactly. of Viagra, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> talking with Louise Erdrich. Oh, well, this was eighty eight, but he's so he's he's going natural. <laughs> Not with a ring necessarily. We're tying in our <laughs> our two hours here, and uh, it's a story uh, of a brutal rape on a Native American reservation, and the son Joe Coots's thirteen-year-old uh, boy, who is the narrator's attempt to find out really um, what happened and to seek justice. Uh, it is, uh, as I said, a very compelling novel. And I was saying to Louise Affair, those of you who remember, nobody calls you Karen anymore, do they? Yes, my parents do sometimes, and my I was at my fortieth high school reunion in Wapaton, North Dakota, and I'm still Karen. Still Karen, yeah. yeah. I, I was Mike at mine. Um, yeah, but I was talking with Louise. Those of you who remember the history, she was married to Michael Doris, and they used to write together on books. And there were some tragic uh, events that occurred, including his suicide. And, and just, it's a tough question to ask, but whether you've grown more um, since his death and since well you two split up um and right, in many well, ways that happened pretty much simultaneously yeah and so I, I you know i i can't really say i think that my growth as a writer has been um to decide in the past two books that i wanted to tell a story straight through i with one narrator basically and that's been a very interesting development for me um because I used to work with these multiple narrators and break up the book and break up the narrative. And now I, I'm, I, I'm getting these voices that just want to continue. So I just go with them. This is a book, the new one, The Roundhouse, really where you're struggling not only with uh, 
with justice um, and how it's rendered. But it's really a book about revenge and about retaliation. It is, but it's, uh, well, it's a book about where you are forced to go when in the absence of justice. And that's why Joe, the narrator, who is just 13, remembers this summer of his life so searing, with such searing clarity. He remembers um, that he takes on the burden of justice for a system that's broken and for parents who, who are fragile. And he has to realize this, all of this in one summer, that his parents are not um, capable, strong individuals anymore. And, and he's the one who decides to make decisions regarding justice. What happens to his mother after the rape um, mm-hmm. This place that gives the book its title, um, yeah. "Sacred Place." In fact, uh, the Roundhouse is a sacred place. Yes. That's right. But it's, I mean, your rendering of what happens to her. Uh, I mean, she really falls in a pretty bad depression. Everything yes. is, is is close to the mark. It seemed to me. I mean, did you read any case studies, or did you uh, just essentially know this from what you had learned and picked up? No, I, I, I knew this from. Knowing, um, from knowing yeah. women from and, life, from life, yeah. just from life, and I, I knew it uh, was not something that people sort of think. Well, I mean, women get this tremendous violation um, to deal with on their own. Sometimes I mean, it's it's thought to be something that that a woman has to just get over somehow. And I've even heard. Um, during my uh, book tours, women have said, you know, I was just told, now you learned your lesson. I mean, there's been this incredibly shocking, I think, dis- discussion of, um, is there a legitimate rape? You know, this kind of discussion has come so out Missouri during Missouri Senate candidate, yeah. Exactly. So, so she is trying to get over this, but it is a family um, tragic. It is a tragic family situation. She can't get over it. She's healing any way she can, and she really can't leave her room. I mean, she really has what would be termed now post-traumatic stress. Just that she isn't an agoraphobia. Agoraphobia. She has things that would have a name, I suppose, now, and maybe had a name then. But for her, that's just how she's trying to get over this: by not moving, by not going anywhere, by not eating, by you know just remaining still in one place. Now, this all, as you said, takes place in 1988, whereas The Plague of Doves, its predecessor, takes place in 1911. Mm-hmm. And yet, as I said, the two are linked. They're linked. So, and I, I think, and, and the, the link here is a legacy, a historical legacy, in which justice is, is difficult or impossible to obtain, and what that does to a community. So we're talking about a family, a community, mm-hmm. a tribe, people. Right. And what that does to a young person who decides that the burden of solving this is upon him. Sometimes when you leave a book, you wish that it wasn't over. I mean, I had such an extraordinary experience in writing this book of being pulled along. You were inhabiting him. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Or he was inhabiting me. Ah, yeah. I, I, I had... So this 
this last character, I haven't been able to let go of him yet. And uh, he's right now, he's my favorite. I wish I was still writing the book, I guess. Is the third trilogy in, is it gestating? Is it coming into picture or, I mean, into focus? Well, it's hard to say. Um, when you're on a book tour, your brain is just focused on the next, the, you know, whether you can go on to the next and, um, venue and still have some lucid thought. <laughs> like I haven't it, really thought about the book. It's Thursday. It must be San Francisco. <laughs> I but, know. But it's, yeah. it, it's, it must be embryonic. I mean, and it, it must be there. Yeah. I'm really hoping it's there because I've, I've loved working on both of these books now. They've been, they've been just, um, uh, almost a magical occurrence for me to be able to come upstairs and find my characters over and over still waiting for me. So I'm hoping that's going to happen again. You've been listening to a special holiday edition of Forum from our archives. My guest was Louise Erdrich on her National Book Award winning novel, The Roundhouse. Earlier, we heard my conversation with the late Maya Angelou about her book, A Song Flung Up to Heaven. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Larberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Susan Britton. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll, and our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Up Ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.